On June 14th, a ship overpacked with 750 migrants began sinking off the coast of Greece, near the deepest point of the Mediterranean Sea. They were from Syria, they were from Pakistan, they were from Egypt, and they were all trying to get to Europe in search of a better life. That's Louisa Lovelock, Baghdad bureau chief for The Washington Post. The trawler was on the water for four or five days, during which time the engine wasn't working properly, conditions became incredibly dire. And then on the fifth day, they sent out their first distress call. They realized they were in trouble, they were scared they were going to sink, and they tried to get help. Desperate passengers make multiple calls over several hours. One of them reaches human rights activist Nawal Sufi. You hear her speaking with a migrant on the ship. She's told that six passengers have died. She says she'll send a message out to Italian authorities. There's panic across the ship. Nawal tells the migrant on the line that people need to hold on. Hold on so that the boat doesn't capsize. Over 600 people may have drowned. The Washington Post recently carried out an investigation into the tragedy. Well, so the Post investigation really casts doubt on claims by Greek officials, and it suggests that this deadliest Mediterranean shipwreck was a preventable tragedy. Greek officials did not call for a high-priority rescue and said that the boat was making steady progress, despite alerts that it was in trouble. And between the boat's first distress call and its sinking, the Greek Coast Guard had hours to save the migrants. And they didn't. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Libby Casey, your guest host. It's Thursday, July 13th. Today, we delve into the migrant ship that sunk off the coast of Greece, leaving hundreds dead. Luisa spoke with my colleague, Alahe Azadi, about how this happened, who is responsible, and how this was a preventable tragedy. Luisa, can you first tell me about this boat? Where did it leave from and when, and where was it headed? So the boat left from the Libyan port town of Tobruk on June 9th. It was packed with about 750 migrants, and it was meant to be heading to Italy. That's what the people on board believed was happening. But in the days that follow, it seems that, amongst other things, the boat had engine trouble. Luisa, what have you learned about what the conditions on this boat were like? The conditions on the boat were absolutely terrible. We spoke to people about how they first saw the boat. And they say that the closer they got to the trawler, the more they started to think things like, I can't fit on that boat. There are too many people on there already. This is impossible. Mm -hmm. But by that point, you know, they were already going. There was no room to turn back. On board the boat, water ran out very quickly. It seems that the Pakistanis faced the worst conditions. Many of them were held below deck. We believe several hundred of them were, in fact. They had no water, and survivors tell us that when they tried to call out for help, when they tried to say that people were dehydrated, they were fainting, 
they were essentially told that if they tried to get out, they would be killed. Hmm. And Louisa, I know you and several of our colleagues at The Post spoke with survivors of this tragedy and also victims' families. Can you tell us more about the people on this boat and why they were leaving their home countries? The people on this boat were leaving for many different reasons, but I think the the thing that connects all of their stories is that they were suffering from a crisis of hopelessness. They had decided that the lives they were leading, be it in Pakistan, Egypt, or in the countries surrounding Syria, were not able to provide them a better tomorrow. A lot of them had large families. A lot of them had no work. And they really believed that getting this boat and then getting to Europe, getting to Italy, as they believed, would give them that chance to live the sort of life that they see when they open their phones, that they see when they look at social media and see what life in Europe is allegedly like. So we spoke to the family of Thayer al-Rahal, a Syrian refugee who was living in Jordan, about why he'd got the boat that day. And I think his story is very instructive. They'd fled the war in Syria back in 2013, two years into the conflict, and they'd stayed in a Jordanian refugee camp for 10 years trying to make it work. These were not people who had just thought that Europe was the easy option. And indeed, when we spoke to his relatives, the thing that they all said was that he didn't want to be on the boat that day. He was very against the very concept of taking a boat. But several years ago, he found out that his youngest son, Khaled, who is now four, had leukemia. They tried to get him treatment in Jordan. And once the money ran out, This was the only way that he saw of making the money to get his child the treatment he needed. Before Thaya got on the boat, he sent a message to his family. This is from his cousin. He told him that he had to pay the smugglers the whole amount they demanded before getting on the boat. And he said he'd be able to do that, that he'd get on the boat. So, Louisa, this overpacked boat, it leaves Libya on June 9th. When and how did the passengers realize that something wasn't right? The survivors say that from the earliest hours on the boat, it didn't seem seaworthy. It didn't seem like it was going to make it the whole way. But it wasn't until the 13th of June that they really started to sound the alarm. They often have a satellite phone on board, a satellite phone that they use to send out distress calls in emergency situations. And according to survivors, after discussions with the captain, after discussions with each other, that's exactly what they did. They called an activist. They called a nonprofit group known as Alarm Phone. It's a nonprofit hotline for refugees and migrants crossing the Mediterranean. And on the call, you can hear it's incredibly noisy. It's incredibly chaotic. People sound very scared in the background. And the callers just say that they will not survive the night. And then what does happen to the boat and the people on board? What follows are hours of missed opportunities by the Greek Coast Guards and other authorities, during which time it seems that the passengers could have been saved. Hmm. And then do we know how many people survived and what happened to the passengers aboard? So of these 750 people who we believe to have been on board the trawler, 
there were only 104 survivors. Wow. It seems that as many as 600 people might have drowned. Their bodies haven't been found. It's very likely, particularly for a lot of the people who were below deck, that they might still be in the boat. You know, they might be under the water, inside the boat, as it wherever it wherever it lies. Survivors were taken to a hospital in Greece, and a humanitarian group went around asking them for the names of people still missing, people who were on the boat and now possibly missing at sea. Hi, let's my walid. I think the survivors, when they came off, were in a terrible state. But more than that, they'd come off with this terrible responsibility. They were the minority who had made it. And the families of the people who didn't, didn't necessarily even know if they were on the boat that day, let alone whether they'd lived or died. So the people who came off then had this huge burden of, of spreading the news, of giving the names, of giving the nationalities of people who had drowned alongside them. Louisa, do you know what happened to Thayer, the, the father who left to find work to help his four-year-old son who had cancer? His family haven't heard from him. Um, they presume that he's dead. The son, Khalid, was, was not told about what happened to him for several days. In fact, he kept asking where he was. Um, and it wasn't until he'd had his biopsy for his, his latest biopsy for his cancer that his mother finally told him he's not coming back anymore. Hmm. After the break, Luisa and Alaje examine the measures that could have averted this tragedy and discuss who will be held responsible for the lives lost at sea. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Louisa... What has the Greek Coast Guard said about its actions and its its obligations to this to this trawler and these migrants aboard? Well, the Greek Coast Guard claims that it did what it had to do. They did call an English speaker aboard the boat, known as called called the Adriana. Sorry, the boat is called the Adriana. At around five thirty p.m. on the thirteenth, and the person who answered the call, they said, said the boat was not in danger. Only it only needs food, it needs water, and then it will continue to Italy. Of course, we have questions about who they did speak to. Was it one of the smugglers? Was it someone involved in the operation? Because a lot of the survivors that we have spoken to have a very different story. They say that the boat was running into trouble, that they wanted help, but at least the English speaker to whom the Greek Coast Guard say they spoke to did say that the boat was not in danger. And this is one of the many sort of missed opportunities that we think there were, you know. This is one of those times when it seems that 
indications that some people on board the boat didn't want rescue were exploited to not intervene, to not move on a boat that was severely overcrowded and already in a bad state. And and what did a post-investigation conclude about what the Greek Coast Guard could have done? Can you unpack for us some of those missed opportunities? Yeah, I mean, the Greek, Coast Guard, the Greek Coast Guard was aware of this case for hours following the initial distress calls, and they didn't take action on time. They eventually sent one boat and not built for carrying hundreds. And what you have to realize as well is that as all of this was unfolding, there were drones in the sky, there were surveillance aircraft in the sky. So there was visual imagery of how overcrowded this trawler was. No one was under any illusions as to how many people were on board. When they finally did come, they didn't provide flotation devices immediately. That's something that my colleagues were told by maritime experts and, and rescue experts should absolutely be a priority when you're doing these kind of rescue missions. The point is that they could have saved them, or at least they couldn't tried. The weather on June 13th was calm, it had clear skies, the resources were there, but they didn't act quickly or with the amount of urgency that they should have done. And Louisa, can you explain to us how you and our Post colleagues made these conclusions? What sort of data did they analyze and reporting did they undertake to to come to these conclusions? So... In order to come to these conclusions, um, myself and our post colleagues examined satellite imagery, we mapped ship traffic data, we looked at coordinates from the distress calls and official reports, and then we spoke to survivors in, in Greece. That was, we felt, the best way to reconstruct what happened. But then to really get a sense of the context, to get a sense of what could have been done, what best practices, we also spoke to a lot of maritime experts and a lot of groups who who work on these rescues who could then themselves describe what best practice looks like when you have a ship of this nature in trouble in the Mediterranean. You know, it's so remarkable to me hearing you describe this situation. This is not a situation in which this is a boat lost at sea. I mean, there are a lot of people around. There are other uh, ships and boats around, and there's drones. I mean, th- this was not a situation in which no one knew where this thing was, and they could see could see how packed it was. And it's just sort of baffling to me that this could have happened. Is the conclusion here that the Greek Coast Guard mismanaged its handling of this situation? I think the conclusion here is that the Greek Coast Guard chose not to mobilize the fullest resources available to them, despite the fact that they essentially had a live feed showing just how many people were on the boat. They had the resources. Getting to the boat in good time was perfectly possible. They did not do it. Louisa, the Greek Coast Guard maintains that it fulfilled all its obligations in the case of the ship, locating the ship, enlisting merchant vessels, sending their own patrol boat. Where does that response from the Greek Coast Guard leave you? In terms of the response from the Greek Coast Guard, you know, they've said that they did what they had to do and they've been defensive of their actions. And I think when we think about, you know, how the Greek Coast Guard did respond on that day, it opens up broader questions about Who gets to be saved when they travel the seas? Who deserves to be saved in the eyes of authorities? As this boat was was in the Mediterranean getting into trouble, in the North Atlantic, five people were preparing to get onto a submersible that was going down to examine the wreckage of the Titanic. 
Search teams from the US and Canada are racing against time to locate a submersible with five people on board that went missing. On the thinking of that submersible received widespread media coverage and essentially a no-expenses-barred rescue mission. When it comes to migrants, who the Greek authorities, many of the European authorities, really don't want to be crossing these seas, really don't want to be reaching their shores, they don't pull out all the stops. They don't make the effort in the way that they absolutely can because they don't want them to come. They, they, they say that to mount these rescue missions is to encourage people. It suggests that if you get into trouble, you will be saved, and they say that people will keep coming. Whether or not that is true, it provides a disincentive for migrants to be rescued at sea. Yeah, Louisa, this also raises a question for me as to whose responsibility it is to rescue people at sea. Who was responsible for rescuing and helping out this trawler full, packed to the brim with people? Also, is there anything we should know more about how Greece has dealt with migrants that is appropriate context for understanding, like, what happened here? Well, so it is Greece that's likely to face legal challenges over its actions or its inactions. The families of the victims who have drowned will probably have a long wait for answers or accountability. But cases can be brought in the European Courts of Human Rights, for example. There are some avenues for prosecutions beyond the domestic courts. However, the accountability story here should not just focus on what Greece did on, on that day. When you think about why these migrants came and why they drowned at sea that day, the story of responsibility goes far wider. Many politicians in the countries they came from have stood up and spoken on television saying how terrible it is what happened to them, how sad they are that their citizens died at sea. Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has called for an immediate action against people traffickers after the boat disaster on Wednesday off southern Greece. And a day of mourning has been declared for tomorrow, um, a day of mourning in Pakistan. But at the end of the day, these are the very same politicians who could not govern in an accountable manner, who could not govern in such a way that gave these people a dignified life, that made them feel they had anything to stay for. So the politicians at home, on some level, bear responsibility. The European Union also bears responsibility. In order to stop migrants coming to European shores, what the bloc has frequently done is pay large amounts of money to authoritarian governments in, in Egypt, in Libya, in, in Tunisia. Essentially, it's a quid pro quo deal. We give you the money, you stop the migrants coming. And when you give those sums of money to these often authoritarian governments, you lose your ability to criticise. You give the leaders of those governments leverage to say, don't criticise us for our humanitarian record. And so then when their record gets worse and worse and the countries get less and less livable, the European Union itself then cannot turn around and use any uh, criticism or anything because they've already given the money and just said, please just stop the migrants. And then, Louisa, when you step back and you look at the fate of of these people, what does it leave, what question does that leave you with? And, and what do you think we should all be thinking about now? The people I keep thinking about are 
the families who do not know what happened to their relatives in, in those final hours, final hours in which these people could have been saved. A lot of the families that I've spoken to, not just from this shipwreck, but over the years, families who have lost people at sea, what, what they say is, you know, that there's no playbook for what happens when your relative goes missing at sea. You don't know who to call. You don't know how to find out more information. And people live for years still with the feeling in the back of their mind that their loved one might walk through the door because they've had no closure. They have no information. But I just keep thinking about the son of Sire, Khalid, who for days, even after he found out that his father was likely dead, kept asking, you know, When's he coming home? Louisa, thank you for bringing your reporting for us today. Thank you. Louisa Lovelock is the Baghdad bureau chief for The Washington Post. She spoke with my colleague, Alahi Azadi. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Tanya Chavla. It was edited by Monica Campbell. It was mixed by Sean Carter. This episode would not have been possible without the hard work of our colleagues at The Post, who put together a visual forensics analysis of the shipwreck. Thanks to Imogen Piper, Joyce Sohyun Lee, Claire Parker, and Alinda Labrapolu. Additional thanks to Mustafa Salim and Nadine Ajaka for translation. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.